You know, this is a time of year where we do many of the same things over and over again. And something about adulthood steals the wonder of childlike faith. There are many amazing things that happened on that holy night when Christ was born. And um, one of them is the virgin birth. And I wonder, for you, is the virgin birth something that troubles you intellectually? You stumble over it? Or does it inspire you? You see, for people of faith, the thought that a sovereign and powerful and supernatural God would be born in such a way is no problem at all. I mean, think about it. Supernatural God, if he was going to enter into humanity, he wouldn't do it in a boring way. He would do it in a supernatural way. So the virgin birth lines up with who he is. It makes sense. It's a powerful thought. And some really struggle with it. I wonder, though, about you tonight. Do you have the wonder of this? Or has it become just the old story? And it's lost for you that sense of mystery and awe. You know, technically, only the conception was supernatural. The birth was rather ordinary. And there are some details, you know, the manger and the born in the stable, and some of those details that are a little unique to this story, but certainly not supernatural. For the most part, it was pretty ordinary. And it's funny how Luke has such an economy of words that only takes him seven verses to tell about the incarnation. And for someone who is not thinking from a faith perspective or doesn't know the background, if you had just read those seven verses, you wouldn't think it was even supernatural. You know, you might say, ah, Joseph, bad luck, man, bad timing. That census went out right when your wife was pregnant and you had to travel. And so everybody had come to the city from all around. So there weren't any rooms in the inn. And so it made sense. The next best thing is the stable. And, you know, what are you going to put your baby in? You don't have a, a nice crib. So here's a manger right? That, that's ordinary. That could be expected. I know some of your stories. I know of one of you who gave birth to your own child in your bedroom because the person was delayed who was coming to help with that birth. I know of another story of one who was born in an elevator on the way up to the labor and delivery floor. If you think around the world, babies come into this world in all sorts of different ways. But the manger is special for a number of things and a number of reasons. And I'll come back to that in a second. But For the most part, it was an ordinary birth. Now, I I have to give you a caution here, and I want to ask you, how do you treat the supernatural? Do you automatically, categorically exclude it in your mind? Do you think, I'm going to doubt that unless it's totally proven otherwise? Or do you go into a childlike faith and say, I believe, help my unbelief, Lord. I hope you'll be open like that. I hope that will be your prayer tonight. Many will trivialize tonight or ignore it or make more out of the figures that aren't even part of the story, a smiling cow in a stable, um, the number of magi or whatever. There's details that aren't even in the story. They've been part of the tradition and people focus on that stuff and miss the huge meaning of this. But others, others marvel at these truths. Others marvel at the supernatural way that God became flesh. And they are moved to worship because of it. Now the manger, if you just look at the first occurrence, it just describes what happened. Luke is telling us what happened. There was no room. They were in the stable. So here's a manger, some place to place the baby. 
The second time of three occurrences that that word is in this chapter 2 of Luke's gospel, it's on the lips of an angel. The angel comes to these shepherds and says, this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby lying in a manger and wrapped in swaddling cloths. The third time that word is uttered, it's what they find. So the shepherds say, let's go and see this thing that has happened. And so they go to Bethlehem, and that's how they identify which baby it is. Otherwise, Jesus looked like every other baby boy that was born, wrapped up in claws, but it was lying, he was lying in a manger. And so what it did is a number of things. It validated the angels. They know what they're talking about. It also, maybe for the first time, got what was a heavy secret off the hearts of Joseph and Mary. I imagine apart from her cousin Elizabeth, there were not many people Mary told about this whole thing to, because frankly, who would believe them? And here come a bunch of shepherds in from outside saying, we want to see this baby because an angel, angels have come to us and told us about this. What looked ordinary to some people was not ordinary. It was extraordinary. It was supernatural. It was wonder-filled. It was awesome. And it inspired them to worship. Verse 18 is so interesting to me. It says in in verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Wonder. How do you define wonder? Wonder is a feeling. It's an emotion. Wonder is a feeling. It's a feeling of surprise or awe caused by something beautiful and unexpected. And since it's a feeling, it can be suppressed. It can be manipulated. It can be snuffed out. Skepticism, unbelief, closed-mindedness can kill wonder. And when that happens, it's not just wonder that is lost. There is much more that is lost when wonder is killed. Think of a scientist who had a love for nature, an interest in the way things were made, drawn into the beauty of creation, wanting to know how things worked. But over the years of his work, he got caught up in the mechanics of it. He got led down a path of a humanistic view and started to neglect the creator, started to deny that there was a creator, came up with an idea of how things could have accidentally happened. And there's no great movement behind it. There's no first cause that's this other being, this creator. I'm thinking of Charles Darwin and I came across this quote from his own autobiography. At the end of his life, he describes what happened to him after he lost wonder. He says this, I have said that in one respect, my mind has changed during the last 20 or 30 years. Up to the age of 30 or beyond it, poetry of many kinds gave me great pleasure. And even as a schoolboy, I took intense delight at Shakespeare. I have also said that formerly pictures gave me considerable delight and music very great delight. But now for many years I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I have tried to read Shakespeare and found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. I have also lost any taste for pictures or music. I do retain some taste for fine scenery, but it does not cause me the exquisite delight that it formerly did. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of a large collection of facts. Do you see what is lost 
when you lose the sense of wonder, your appreciation for beauty, your sense of life, your ability to receive creation as a gift from God, all that and much more goes. Now, on the contrary, when you open yourself to the wonder of a supernatural being, the living God who has broken into humanity, who has taken humanity into himself, has become man out of love for us, did amazing things, defeated death and rose and is ascended as the king of the universe. The newborn king is ruling today. When you open your heart to the wonder of all that he is and has done, it inspires worship. It gives you an appreciation for beauty. You feel alive, truly alive in that. Christ's birth is an encounter with the living God for those open to wonder. I want you to open your heart tonight to just two wonder-filled things about God. One is his sovereignty, and the other is his salvation. And I want to look at his sovereignty first, because both Caesar Augustus and the innkeeper in Bethlehem were part of God's sovereign plan for all eternity, completely unwittingly. You see, Caesar Augustus called this census, and he didn't realize that it was like the first domino being knocked down that brought about the fullness of time that God had planned for all eternity. Caesar Augustus is adopted. He's the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar uh, led Rome into a bloody internal civil war. Augustus rose as the strongest leader, an incredible leader in fact, consolidated Rome, strengthened it, established the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It brought great material wealth, it brought stability, it brought expansion, it brought arrogance. He decides to declare Julius Caesar a god, which then, what does that make him? A son of God. And this cult of worship started to rise up, where it became expected that you would worship and bow down to this son of God, this Caesar. And like all men who get power, he wanted to know how big he was, how tough and rich and powerful he'd become, so he issues a census. It also helped his tax basis. He could increase his wealth. And in so doing, though, he called this king to be born in Bethlehem. Now, this is a sovereign plan that God knew about for ages. So hundreds, a couple hundred years before this, Micah, the prophet, writes this in chapter 5, verse 2. He says, but you, O Bethlehem, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You see, God had a plan that his son would be born in Bethlehem. And because of this census, it required Joseph and Mary to travel up there. And that's why Jesus was born there. It was the census that was used. This is part of God's sovereignty. He's in control of all these details. Now, the Anglican scholar N.T. Wright says this. He says, Meanwhile, far away on that same eastern frontier, a a boy was born who would within a generation be hailed as the Son of God, whose followers would speak of him as Savior and Lord, and whose arrival, they thought, had brought true justice and peace to the world. Augustus never heard of Jesus of Nazareth, but within a century or so, his successors in Rome had not only heard of him, 
they were taking steps to obliterate his followers. Within just over three centuries, the emperor himself, Constantine, would be a Christian. This is the newborn king, and God sovereignly oversaw all the details of it. Now, you know what's amazing, too, is he knows all the details of your life. He doesn't just sovereignly rule in, in his son's birth. He sovereignly rules in your life. Or even as Jesus said, not a, not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of God. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows the words you're going to say before they come off your tongue. This is our sovereign God. And that should inspire awe and wonder. Not only that, but consider, consider his salvation. The experience at the inn, with the innkeeper, there's no room at the inn. That experience is a foreshadowing of things to come. It's a pattern of how God interacts. In John chapter 1, John writes this. He says, the true light, he's speaking of Jesus, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. You see, for this Messiah, this Christ, this newborn king, rejection was the pattern. That was how he was coming into his rule. He was rejected and found himself born in a wooden manger. Later, that rejection would be much more extreme. He's rejected first from the inn. Then he's rejected from the temple as the great high priest. He was not received. Then he's rejected by the world, by Pontius Pilate. He's rejected by the hearts of many. And I wonder, is your heart open to him this Christmas? God's salvation comes through the rejection of his king. And what happens is, out of love for us, he goes to that cross. And he deals with our sin there, and he begins to change our hearts. He changes us from the inside out. Because what we don't need is just a better Caesar. We need a new heart. And that's who this king is. That's what he's come to do for us. Now, there's something else that's really cool. Not only is he, his rejection at this inn a foreshadowing of the pattern of how his kingdom is going to come, it also is significant where it is. Bethlehem is only a very short uh, couple of miles away from Jerusalem. And, you know, in Jerusalem where the temple is, they have to do a lot of sacrifices for the sins of the people, daily sacrifices. And they have to sacrifice spotless lambs, perfect lambs. Where do they get those? They have shepherds that are out in the fields just a couple of miles away to the southwest in Bethlehem. And they're tending those flocks. Those aren't just ordinary shepherds. They're tending the flocks that will be used to provide the sacrifices in the temple. And so when the angel comes, he might as well have said, guys, you're out of work. The final lamb has come. And if you jump far enough ahead, Don't get caught up in the manger tonight. See the big sweep of this. If you jump far enough ahead and you go to Revelation, you see an amazing throne room scene where all of history is about to be revealed. It's on this final scroll that has to be opened. And John is there and he's weeping because no one was found worthy to open it. And then someone says to him, weep no more for the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy. He is conquered. He's worthy to open the scroll. And then it says this. It says, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And then a little further down, it says, and I had, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell, fell down and worshipped him. This is something to have wonder at, to marvel at, to be in awe over. That our God was willing to humble himself to become that lamb to be slain for our sins so that we could be reconciled to him. Now, John's gospel, when it starts with those tough words about Jesus coming to his own people and being rejected, there's no room at the end, being rejected by his people, it doesn't stop there. There's another verse. In John 1, it goes on. In verse 12, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John speaks of that new heart, the new life that this king would bring. This is good news. This is God's salvation. And he does it through rejection. And he defeats sin and death on the cross and rises as the king forever. It is a personal experience of salvation. And the wonder then issues forth both worship as well as witness. These, these shepherds, they leave Bethlehem and they're telling everybody. They're telling everybody what happened. And all who hear this, they marvel at it. They, they're in wonder about it. They are speaking out of their personal experience. It's not just, hey, we heard a story about something. They said, angels came to us and declared something, and we went to see it, and it actually was there, as they said. This was their story of an interaction with this living God. What is your story? Have you invited him into your heart? Have you experienced the living God? I want to encourage you to do that. You see, the shepherds, because of their wonder and their experience of God and his majesty, they are moved to worship. And in verse 20 of chapter 2 of Luke's gospel, it says, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Their lives were transformed forever. They were changed into worshipers in a new way. Let's do the same. Open your heart to wonder. Look at the details of this story. Look at who God is. Look at what he has done. This is supernatural stuff. It's powerful, but it's so easy to overlook it. Don't miss it. Become full of God's wonder. I want you to pray with me. Lord, I ask your forgiveness for the times when we let this story become so commonplace that we treat it like it's just a story. And yet we date this year based on the life of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd help us see afresh how amazing this is, that we would worship you because we recognize who you are. And I pray for anyone in here who has hardened their hearts and lost wonder, that you would be merciful to them. Give them the courage to pray, help my unbelief, Lord. We want to enter your kingdom with the faith like that of a child. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.